Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Looking to conclude this chapter this morning and got a little narrative and, and much to, to study about. Just want to make note to, it, to you as well. Today, um, this morning, we have the joy of celebrating 23 years as a church. And we have birthday cake for you. And uh, we'll make sure that we say amen and bless the cake and, and go after it. So, But uh, when we were singing that, His mercy is more, it just reminds me of that. His mercy is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for us. And we've seen his hand throughout 23 years of ministry here in this, this valley. And we pray that he continues to lead, guide, and direct. And what a joy it is to be a part of his kingdom. Mark chapter 6. Today's title of the sermon is Divine Authority. He walks on water. Let me read the text for us. Starting in verse 45. The Word of God reads this, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him on the other side of Bethesda, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole country. And began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the friends of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Let us pray. Father, we come each week with amazement in our hearts. As we see your Son manifest his glory on this earth, we thank you for sending him and having him display the glory of God 
before our eyes. My fear is that too often we take that the miracles of Jesus and who he is as, as a person in a trivial type of way in our lives. Father, open our hearts to the majesty and the glory, the wonderment of all that our Lord has done. And may we come to worship this morning. Spirit, help us not to get too familiar with Jesus that we forget him. Have your way with our, our hearts. Teach us. Be with your under-shepherd. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We come to a, a very familiar passage. So much so, I think too often we, we expect Jesus to do this, and, and, and the way we go, he walks on water. You tell me, who does that? And how miraculous that is. In the pages of history, it is said of President London, Lyndon B. Johnson had a feisty relationship with the press. We all thought that was commonplace, did we not? In fact, it is said his relationship with the press is what made this opposition what it is today. No one had seen this type of conflict before. There was a sense of reverence and awe with the office in which it held. But you and I know that it has gotten worse over time. After a continuous sparring with some reporters, Johnson said, quote, one morning, he says, if one morning I walked on top of the water across the Potomac River, the headline that afternoon would read, President Can't Swim, end quote. The point that Johnson made in that moment is actually at the heart of the text that we look at here this morning. The phrase, he walks on water, speaks to a person's awesomeness, his superior ability, his actions to be able to make creation stand still in a sense that which was liquid to be solidified and be able to walk on it. Of course, Johnson was stealing from this metaphor from the pages of scriptures. And the reality is it's not just a metaphor, right? It's a truth. It's a fact. Jesus walked on water. It's a truth that amazed the disciples and a truth that continues to amaze us today. And the reality of his ability to walk on water shows his divine authority that he has complete control, that he is sovereign, that he is God, and creation obeys his commands. This event also is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 14 and John 15. Luke admits this for whatever reasons. Remember, there's only one miracle, and we saw that last week, that is recorded by all four Gospels, and that's the feeding of the 5,000, which really turned out to be 20,000. 
In Matthew and John, and even here in Mark, they all highlight different aspects of the events of that day where Jesus came to them walking on water. And if you look at this account in Mark, you will, you will see three different scenes. And, and the, the text is, and probably your scriptures are, are broken up that way. And it's helpful to look at that. Scene one, we, we pick up Jesus in verse 45, where he's on the shore. He sends his disciples away, and he, and he scatters the 20,000 people. Scene two takes place on the water. The bulk of our passage in our study takes place on the water in the Sea of Galilee. In scene three, he lands on the shore with his disciples in the land of Gennesaret. They all work together to point to Jesus' relationship with others. And if you watch this, you see what Jesus is doing. I mean, if you take a bird's eye view of exactly what's happening, you have Christ who's interacting with all these different types of people. It shows us how he interacts with various situations, how he deals with individuals. And there's much there that we can learn. And there are many takeaways in which we'll pull away from these, these verses when it's time. But it's just uh, amazing to see his interaction going from place to place and dealing with people and individuals and those who are close and those who are far. But that really gives us a, a snapshot of how the heart of the Savior deals with individuals. And we can learn, like I say, much from him. The first snapshot that we see is in verses 45 and 46. And the... the, the the emphasis of those two verses is that Jesus is prayerful with the Father. I mean, he's so engaged with making sure that he, he prays with God the Father, that this, this relationship with, with the Trinity is, is, is happening before their eyes. This scene, of course, takes place after Jesus had fed excuse me, the multitude. And that was profound. Hopefully you walked away last week with the reality of Jesus. Every time he broke bread, the, 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 the miracle that happened in between his hands as the bread and the fish were continuing to be multiplied to feed over 20,000 people. And what's interesting about that is if we were to look over in John's account at the end of this miracle, he says there in John 6.15, look to the screen, it says there, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. I mean, that, that's not hard to understand. I mean, here is Christ performing miracle after miracle after miracle. He is providing for them physically by, by healing and curing them, showing his divine hand in the midst of their life. But he's also providing for them physically with food. I mean, this concept of making him king, I mean, it makes sense. He healed the people and he fed them. No wonder Jesus perceived that they were intending to make him king. He had their best interests in mind. No wonder the people saw him as their king. But as scriptures and we know the plan of God in the midst of the Gospels is that it wasn't his appointed time yet, was it? And John tells us that Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. I mean, you talk about having everybody just riled up, being fed, being taught, and being understood about the plan and purposes of God, and here they want to make him king. You think that he would bask in the glory of all the popularity that he had, but not our Lord, right? 
he withdrew to be himself from the crowds to be alone. Now back to Mark 6.45, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethesda while he himself was sending the crowd away. I mean, if you look at this, there's, there's a lot of things going on there, right? He, he, he's dispersing the crowd, but he's intending and making his, his disciples to get in the boat and send them away as well. Now, how he did this, I don't know. I mean, you think about that. Just the power of Christ, the authority of his own word, to be able to descend and disperse 20,000 people and make his disciples get in the boat and go to the other side. Text doesn't say how he did that, but it's amazing to me the, the authority and just thinking through how he did that in light of no amplification, be able to disperse the crowd that big. Divine authority on display. People obeyed, they left. Disciples, I think, were reluctant to go. Because the text tells us that he had to make them get into the boat. He bade them leave. Literally, in the Greek, it means that he had to force them, compel them to leave. Again, the question is why. The text doesn't tell us necessarily. I think we can have our speculations and doubts, but you and I both know that where speculation and thoughts lead, sometimes that gets us in trouble. So we'll leave it where it's at. There's there's a reason why Jesus, we know that his intentions was wanting to be alone. We know that he wanted to pray. That we do know. But he makes them get in the boat, and he makes them leave. Mark simply shows us Jesus' divine authority over the crowds and over his disciples. He makes them, forces them to leave. So that in verse 46, if you look at it, it says, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to to pray. He sent everyone away so he could pray. And what we see in the Gospel of Mark is that Mark often shows us that when big things happen, Jesus does what? He stops and he prays. We saw that already in Mark 135 when he was choosing the disciples. He got himself away and he prays. We think about even at the end of his ministry that he is in the garden and it does what? Before his crucifixion and before his death and resurrection, he does what? He prays, prays. And even before he walks on the water, he, he prays. It's interesting to me. We don't have much about the prayers of Christ. We know how he taught his disciples to pray. The only recorded prayer for us is in John 17, where the high priestly prayer, where Jesus extols his heart and his desire for his sheep. But we know that this was commonplace. Jesus often communes with God the Father in prayer alone. And if you think about just that action in itself, we don't pray just because Jesus prays. I mean, we pray because Jesus made us access to God to pray. Do you understand that? He opens the veil so that we can enter into a praying relationship with God the Father. So not only does he model that he prays, but he opens the opportunity for us as his children to pray to him. 
I think of Hebrews chapter 10. This is where we left off in our scripture reading this morning, but picking up in verse 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. In other words, the intimacy that Jesus had with God the Father and his ability to pray to him, he unveils and opens up for us and gives us the same access to God the Father. I mean, that is profound. It makes you push back your chair and just wonder of all the awesomeness of what God is doing here. I mean, it's just profound. So many takeaways from this truth alone. For example, when you have a major decision in life, do you pray? Do you seek the Father's wisdom? Do you have access to him? Do you go to him? When you have an important meeting, do you stop and pray? Before you open your mouth, do you pray? I mean, I look at this and his interaction and, and his pattern to, to pray before all these major events is, is teaching us much. And if it was important for him to pray, don't you think it's important for us to pray? He's prayerful with God the Father. That alone sets heavy on our souls because I think too often we try to figure it all out in our human reason before we stop and pray. Before we stop and pray. But there's more going on here. We come to scene two, and this is kind of remarkable too. Not only does he perform a miracle, but, but the point of the passage and, and what we find, what's next, is, is that he was patient with his disciples. Look at verse 47. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. So there it was. Don't necessarily know how long he was praying, but we know that he had dispersed the crowd, and he had sent his disciples away. We get some kind of indication in verse 48 that it was the fourth watch of the night, which, by the way, that was either three, but anywhere between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. So there was somewhat of a considerable amount of time where he's praying, and the disciples are fighting the winds of the sea. Look at verse 48, seeing them straining at the oars. Remember, these are hardened fishermen. And here they are battling the waves. It might also give us indication why they did not want to get in the boat. They understood what was happening with the sea and the land and, and, and the storm that was no doubt brewing. But verse 48, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. He was praying. He says amen, and he, and he looks up, and he sees off the shore disciples straining. They were pulling hard at the oars. They were fighting the wind. It was a fierce headwind. They couldn't have the sails up. They were fighting the sea. 
They were out there on the Sea of Galilee against their wills, fighting to, to get to the shore. What's interesting to me in the Greek, the words was against them, and this verse is also used in other verses about demons. And literally, the wind was tormenting them. The wind was fighting them, torturing them. They were stuck. Now, I don't think there's any indication that this was an evil type of situation. It was just, it's a divine situation, as we will see. The point is, is that they were stuck. This was a divine placement of the disciples by the Lord himself. And then we continue with verse 48, where it reads, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Jesus walked on the water. Divine authority over his creation, the ability to get there from shore to where they are in the boat. Of course, we're talking a little bit about this with Nate on the radio this week. I mean, the liberals do so much funny things. They do not like the supernatural. They will not bow their knee to a Jesus who has divine miracles and divine authority over creation. And what they do with this is, is horrendous. And so they try to dismiss this. There's no way that Jesus walked on water. So he must have walked on what? A sandbar. Really? That doesn't compute when you think about what John and Matthew say about Peter falling in the water so much so that he asked the Lord to what? Save him. Another liberal has the idea that it was frozen over. Again, the rationale of, of just complete dismissal of the fact of this miracle. Which, by the way, this is, this is Satan's ploy. Satan wants you to look at the scriptures and dismiss it, especially when it comes to the miracles of Christ. Why? Because the greatest miracle ever performed by Jesus himself, who is God, is the resurrection. And if, the, if liberals can get you to not believe that truth, then eternity and eternal life and believing in the Messiah is all for naught. Truth is, Jesus walked on the surface of a turbulent sea. And at the end of verse 48, it gives us this interesting phrase. It says that he intended to pass them by. And to some degree, you think that he's just walking maybe just to the other side to beat them there. But that's not the intention of the text. The intention of the Greek literally means that he was purposely going straight towards them. Jesus walked straight to the boat. He had a direct reason for his going. And he was going to his disciples. Why? Because they were in trouble and they were in need. And this is our Lord, is it not? Who always shows up at the right time in your greatest need. Does he not ever? I mean, he always does that. This is his character. And I think about that. There's never a moment in this life where the great shepherd doesn't show up in your greatest hour of need. He's always there. And not only does he show up, he deeply cares for you. Back to Mark 6. How do the disciples respond to Jesus showing up? Verse 49. 
For when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that he was a ghost, and they cried out. Now, what's interesting to me, you don't get the emphasis of what literally what the Greek is saying there. Literally, they saw Jesus, was scared, and verse 50 will tell us they were terrified, and they screamed. They were little girls who were screaming, here he comes. And I think we laugh, I think we would be the same way. Here comes Jesus, this presence, and they scream. They were hardened fishermen, rugged, experienced on the lake, and they saw Jesus. And not only did they scream, they didn't recognize him. Which plays important to what Mark is doing here. Why? Because when we look at what's happening there in, in verse 50, when they saw him, was terrified, and they didn't recognize him. We do know when we get to verse 53, 54, the people on the shore did what? They recognized him immediately. And so Mark is is showing the the contrast of hearts in the midst of all that. And then verse 50, these calming words, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Isn't that our Lord? Comforting hand of a father. He speaks to their calms. He speaks to their fears and calms them, in other words. And literally in the Greek, it is I. He says, I am. Which you and I both know how significant that is. When Moses asked God, as he, God gave him the Ten Commandments to send them back down to the people. Moses says, who should I say that you are? And he says, I am. Again, Jesus is pointing to the reality that he is God. Take courage. It is I am. Do not be afraid. I mean, how often, beloved, do we find ourselves in those situations where we are afraid, where we are scared, where we don't know what to do, or what's next. And the reminder of Jesus' words, often throughout the pages of the scriptures, often speaks to our souls, saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus has it. He has it, right? And he will always have it. That is so comforting in the midst of a turbulent life where trials come at us from every direction. What do we who are in Christ ever have to fear? Because Christ, our shepherd, is always there. All of our anxiety is, is washed away with what? With the, why? With the purpose and the character of Jesus Christ. Verse 51, then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Now, what's interesting to me, Mark leaves out a very important part of the passage that Matthew and John brings. Do you know what it is? Remember the account? Who stepped out of the boat? Peter, right? You know that, where's Peter on all this? Why doesn't Mark give us the account of what Matthew and John tell us about Peter getting out of the the boat and walking to Jesus. 
Now, again, the text doesn't tell us. I think maybe to some degree we know that Peter was um, an advisor to, to, to Mark in his writing of his gospel and tell, retelling some of these accounts. One can speculate that maybe, maybe Peter didn't tell Mark about this. Just a guess, right? Speculation, which, like I said, gets us in trouble. But look at the screen. Here's Matthew's account, Matthew 14. Picking this up, in verse 24, it says, But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the well, waves, for the wind was contrary. Verse 25, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, verse 28, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took a hold of him, and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. They didn't recognize him. Peter doubts him. Of course, like I said earlier, that response plays in what follows in verse 54. But back to Mark chapter 6, verse 52, this, this is the main point. And it reads this, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They just didn't get it. I mean, the interaction with Jesus, seeing miracle after miracle, miracle before their eyes, healing people, producing food right before their eyes, they just didn't get it. And Mark tells us their heart was hardened. Of course, he's pointing back to the miracle of the feeding of the 20,000 and that they hadn't learned anything. I mean, it just shows how short-sighted we are sometimes in our faith, is it not? I mean, here we have the King of Kings. We know our Christology is solid. We know who Christ is. But often in our practice, we fall short because we doubt and we see with our eyes and our thoughts get in the way of the loftiness of who Christ is. They just didn't get it. I don't know what was going on, why their hearts were hardened. I, I think to some degree, as you heard from my morning prayer, that, that it's one of those things where, was it because they were so familiar with Jesus always doing this? that they missed in whose presence they were. They were in the presence of the Son of God, Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. For that matter, they all should have jumped out of the boat and ran to him and embraced him. And so the question I leave is, can we be so familiar with Jesus that we too forget who he is.
you chew on that. And by the way, I want you to chew on that. If we head to our third scene and our third snapshot of Jesus' interaction with people. And that is, thirdly, that he is perceptive to the needs of others. This is pretty remarkable. Look at verse 53. It says, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Verse 55, and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. I mean, you talk about a welcoming party. Those people understood exactly who Christ was. Though it might have been selfish, though it might have been self-consumed, they understood that he was the one who could heal them. And so they gathered the people, placed people on, on pallets, and brought them to the place where he was. This is an indictment against the disciples and their lack of understanding. The people knew him. His disciples didn't. By the way, if there's anybody who should have known Christ, it would have been his disciples, right? Should have been his disciples. The word spread fast. They heard that Jesus was on the shore. They rushed to him. Verse 56, wherever he entered village, wherever he entered village or cities, or the countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. When we think about touching the cloak, that should immediately ushers you back to what? To the woman who had the 12-year hemorrhage, right? Who was so confident knowing that Jesus would heal her. She, of course, had such a, I mean, she, we looked at that passage. It was pretty profound in thinking about the Levitical laws that she was violating by just being in the crowd with her uncleanliness. But yet she made her way to Christ so that she could touch his cloak. No doubt that truth had spread. They knew that there was power in, in the fact of his, the fringe of his cloak was, was available. And all they wanted to do was touch it. And Scripture tells us when they did, they were cured. Profound. Profound. I think what's and the point that I want you to see is here's Jesus. He feeds 20,000. He prays, calms the fears of the disciples, goes to the shore, and continues ministering. By healing, by healing. He was perceptive of their needs. He, he knew that they were coming. They, they understood that, I mean, why the crowds were coming. He knew their hearts. He healed them. Why? Because he cared for them. He cared for them. Interesting insight about this whole incident of Jesus walking out, and that usually captures our attention, and, and rightly so. It's a great miracle profound miracle. So much so, Job 9.8 says this, look at the screen, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? I mean, Job understood it was only God that was able to do that. I don't think we have that scripture in there, do we? No. 
Let me read it to you again. Job 9.8, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Speaking about God, Job makes this reference of, that it is God who stretches out the heaven. It is God who tramples the waves of the sea. And so what does Jesus manifest himself to do? He walks on the waves of the sea. How can we miss that? How can people, and even liberals who doubt his miracles, how do they miss the reality that he is God? In their own sinfulness, they don't want to want him to be God, right? Who walks on water? Who tramples down the wind-torn waves? Jesus. Jesus, don't miss that point. Jesus is our God. Jesus is the divine authority. He is sovereign over his creation. He has the ability to heal. He has the ability to create miracles and right in front of people's eyes. He does the supernatural. He is God in the flesh. Don't miss that truth. I think there's a second takeaway that is helpful for us. I alluded to it earlier, but Jesus is aware of our needs. Don't you understand that? Not only is he aware, he shows up often. Especially in our weakest times. Just because it's so fresh in my heart, I remember being down at the dock in the Snake River and <clears throat> you have crowds of people trying to find Taylor and they're doing their, their deal. had somebody come up to me and goes, why are you so calm? I said, because my great shepherd's here. He is my great shepherd. And I have nothing to fear. They were perplexed by that. They were so perplexed because they were telling me a story after story after story how, how angry people are when they're trying to help. I just told them, my comfort is in Christ. Jesus is aware and cares for our weakness. A third takeaway, no doubt. This is kind of remarkable. Jesus is patient even when we don't understand do you understand that? He could have got 12 new disciples. These guys are yo-yos. Let's kick them out of the boat. Let's get 12 new people. Let's sign them up and let's go. He doesn't. He is so patient with their misunderstandings. And how often is our Lord patient with us? He's patient in our sanctification. He's patient in our understanding of him. His desire is for us to know him fully, yes. To mature in him, to be complete in him, yes. But he doesn't give up on us. He continues to strive with us. And that encourages me all the more to continue to study, continue to read, and continue to know the scriptures. I mean, that characteristic alone it's worth its weight in gold. You have your Savior who's so patient with you, so caring for you, rooting for you, 
given you everything that you need to understand him, and yet is so patient when you don't. I don't know about you, I, I walk away from a passage that is so familiar and we, we get it and it gets taught to us often and, and I walk away amazed, in awe, this is our Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the morning. Thank you for the joy of taking our hearts through a text that we have been taught maybe even as a child And it reminds us so much of the awe of who you are, but yet there's so much going on in this narrative. We thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. We see that displayed often with the disciples, how patient you were with them. And yet so purposeful. I mean, for you to see them struggling and for you to go directly to them. Scripture tells us once you got into the boat, the winds stopped. How comforting that is to be in your presence, knowing that you have everything in control. And sometimes we understand, Lord, that sometimes the waves don't stop, but yet you bring a, a calmness to our souls that is hard for the world to understand. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, we get it. You are the great shepherd of our souls. You meet our every need. You are sufficient in every way. And we thank you for that. We pray that your truth continues to impact our thoughts this week. Even as we leave and scatter from this place, that we're able to ponder the depths of our great Christ. We thank you, Lord, for, for always bringing you in front of our minds and helping us to dwell on your goodness and greatness. May the impact of reading and studying this text again bring worship to our souls. And so we love you, and we thank you, and we give you all the praise, for you are a mighty Redeemer and great God. We pray in Jesus' name, and the people said, amen. Why don't you stand, and we'll, uh, we'll close in a song. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.